So, I'm really grateful for Robert's willingness to step in last week and point us to Jesus. Uh, he gave us this reminder of how Jesus is the one who ushers in peace. As we think about this dynamic in the context of our current sermon series, Law and Grace, we're reminded how peace is possible in, or peace is never possible in the face of law. Peace is never possible in the face of law. As repeated breakers of God's law, we would only live in fear, haunted by the curse that we've brought upon ourselves. But in grace, Jesus draws near to us and brings peace. So Jesus doesn't merely call his followers to peace. He is the actual embodiment of peace. He supplies peace endlessly. So we're going to be in Luke 22 this morning. So, okay, Luke 22. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you've got a device, you can swipe there. Luke 22, we're going to be in verses 24 through 30. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. All right, let's pray. God, thank you that you are bigger than technology, and I pray that you would be bigger than that this morning. Um, Help us in the midst of these verses to be able to see law and grace. And I pray that we would be drawn to grace. That we would not be, that we would see what law is, that we would let it properly function in our lives, and then we would be compelled, moved, changed by grace. So Jesus, please have your way in this time. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So you guys, apparently what you're seeing up here is not what I'm seeing. So maybe I'm clicking through this. Okay. So I'm not seeing that on, on here. So maybe you just want to refresh this for me and uh, we'll work our way through this. All right. Thanks guys for bearing with me on this. Okay, so it's imperative that as we look at these verses in Luke 22, as we begin, that we ensure we understand the context of what's going on in this verse or around this verse. So just prior to this story, Jesus found himself uh, alone with his disciples. So they were sharing a Passover meal together. Passover was an annual celebration for Israel that commemorated God's deliverance in Egypt. So a thousand plus years prior to this meal being eaten, 
God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They were subject to the cruel rule of a foreign king, subjected to forced harsh labor conditions with no capacity to escape, to get out of Egypt. So Israel, what they did then is they cried out to God. And God heard them, and he instructed them to take the blood of a lamb and paint it on the doors of their houses. When God's spirit moved through Egypt that fateful night, his spirit would pass over their houses, over the houses with the blood of the lamb painted on it. Those houses that did not have the blood of a lamb painted on it would suffer the death of the firstborn in that family. Ultimately, this would be what allowed Israel to leave Egypt, to walk out of Egypt free, no longer slaves. And this became known as the Exodus. The Exodus was a physical example of what would occur in a greater spiritual way through Jesus. Jesus would free people spiritually. He would Exodus people spiritually from sin. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, shed his blood so that God's wrath would pass over those who painted themselves with Jesus' shed blood. And when I said, say painted themselves, what I'm saying is they believed in Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins. And in so doing, Jesus would lead people out of the enslavement of sin. So Jesus, God's firstborn, would die for sinners like you and me. God's wrath would pass over those trusting in Jesus. So Jesus' friends were celebrating God's kindness together at this meal, this Passover meal, remembering how he had delivered Israel, their people, from slavery in Egypt. But Jesus was, in that moment, preparing to bring about the greatest deliverance, the one pointed to by the exodus from Egypt. Jesus told his friends during this Passover meal, he was about to suffer greatly. And he also gave them a picture of what would be accomplished through his suffering by cleansing them. He sat down and he washed their feet as a depiction of how he was serving them and many others and in so doing, cleansing them. Now as he taught his disciples that night, he spoke about a new covenant. So a covenant is essentially an agreement stipulating how God and his people relate to one another. So he's speaking about how God is relating to his people in a new way. But when there's something new, it also implies there's something that could be referred to as old. So there was an old covenant, and there is a new covenant that he's talking about here. There is an old way in which God and his people related to one another, and there is a new way in which God and his people related to one another. Hebrews 8.13 speaks of it in this way. It says there, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to, fat, or to vanish away. So the first covenant, the old covenant, is vanishing away. That covenant was the covenant of law. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. Now we talked in our first sermon in this series about how the old is made obsolete. 
The Bible still talks about the law being good and holy, but it has a specific purpose now. The specific purpose is not for us to try to follow the law. The right use of the law is to show us that we are unable to save ourselves, to prove to us our inability to please God through our impious behavior. The law is intended to help us understand we need help. And help is found in Jesus. That's what the law exists for today. So the proper use of the law is to show us our need for Jesus. To point us to him. To get us to the one who can save us. (coughs) So the law becomes obsolete as a means to save ourselves. The point of the Christian life is not to be the best at obeying the Ten Commandments. That's not what the Christian life is about. As soon as we put the emphasis there on obeying the Ten Commandments, on following the law, we begin to go down the same path Jesus' disciples were on in the verses that we are looking at today. And we are talking about the pursuit of greatness in these verses. And what we find is that the pursuit of greatness outside of Jesus, will actually result in the opposite. It will not result in our greatness. So let's look at some of these verses in Luke 22. Verse 24 begins this way. A dispute also arose among them, them being Jesus' disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Okay, I want to take us to the verse right before this. Okay? Right before this, these fellows were questioning one another as to who was going to be the one to betray Jesus. It says in verse 23, and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to betray Jesus. So they're arguing about who could that be. Immediately, the conversation shifts to who is the greatest. Look at that transition, right? Same conversation Same setting, everything's the same. And it goes from who's going to betray Jesus to who's the greatest. It tells a little bit about what's inside of us, right? This is shocking. How could it go from I'm going to betray Jesus or I'm not to I'm the greatest? Now there's something in all of us that aspires after greatness, whether it's being a parent, being great at our job, being great at a given sport, maybe being great at art or a video game, a hobby, academics in the classroom, we like the affirmation that comes with being great. The power, the control, the authority that comes with greatness. Our desire for greatness is something that doesn't always require a lot of intentional planning on our parts. Some, probably. Some discipline, but oftentimes not a lot of intentional planning because we naturally make sacrifices for the things in which we want to be great at. We will naturally work hard for those things. We will naturally sacrifice our money, our time, so that we can pursue greatness in a certain area. But what I want us to see here is that what undergirds our pursuit of greatness is law. What undergirds our pursuit of greatness 
is law. Throughout this series, we've frequently gone back to Deuteronomy 28 as a way to define law. And I think it's helpful for us here. If you obey, (coughs) you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. Okay, so this is saying the law is obey and blessing comes. Disobey that law and cursing comes. So if we transpose this onto our conversation regarding greatness, what we find is there's usually a formula for our attainment of greatness, for our attainment of blessing. So here's the steps you should take or you can take that will potentially result in your blessing, in you becoming great in some area of life. You can go to Barnes & Noble right now and you could find a litany of books that have been written giving the secrets to success, to blessing, to greatness in some way. So at its core, law emphasizes performance. And that's what we see in Deuteronomy 28. Okay, it emphasizes performance. Law will separate the haves from the have-nots. The path to greatness is a prescribed set of rules that should be followed. This is law. Basically speaking, this is law. At its core, law has a desire to define greatness, to define blessing. As Jesus' followers are debating which of them is the greatest, we can be sure that their basis for their personal greatness is focused on one thing, and that's their resume. They're going to point to their resume and say, see, look at the things that I have done. Look at this list that validates my greatness. This is something we talked about earlier in our sermon series, this idea of a resume. And how law-based people will oftentimes run to their resume. What we find with the law and with the pursuit of greatness is a system that is transactional in nature. Here's what needs to be done so that you might receive blessing or to be considered great in the eyes of someone. That is the law then that must be followed. And in return, if that law is followed, one may receive blessing or greatness. And this is exactly what Jesus is addressing in the teaching he provides in this story. So he's talking about kings, and he refers to them as benefactors. Essentially, he's calling out kings, or or maybe a word we could use today that would speak to our context is influencers. He's calling out kings and influencers who give a benefit to a certain group of people so that those people will then give them honor, will then give them authority back to that king or back to that influencer. This is what's called a quid pro quo. This for that. This is transactional. Jesus is pointing out how these kings are engaged in a transactional relationship at heart. Grace is not transactional. But then Jesus, he's going to go on to explain that this is not how his kingdom works. He says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. In first century culture, children were to be seen, but not heard. It's why it's a jarring statement that Jesus invites young children to come to him, to draw near 
to him. And why here we find Jesus equating greatness with those who are the youngest. This goes against all of the conventions of what someone would consider great in that day, in the first century. Sorry, you guys. So in the first century, the religious elite believed greatness was found in knowing and following laws. Military greatness was found in strength and the brutal defeat of enemies, something kids could not do. Political greatness was in the accumulation of followers, the bestowal of authority and important titles. (coughs) So no one would look at a child and think, that's greatness. I see greatness in that child. Maybe this gets a little bit blurred for us today because our culture has a tendency to look for prodigies, right? Find that kid who's really good at that thing early on and try to basically ruin their lives by pushing them into contexts and spaces that they should not be in, that they're not prepared for or ready for. (coughs) But where Jesus is really driving this conversation is to emphasize what a leader looks like. And he says, a leader is one who serves. And Jesus then goes on to state, for who is the greater one? Or for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? His point is that it's common sense that the important people, those in authority, are going to sit back at a meal. They're going to be the ones who are enjoying it, who are being served. They're going to be served by the servants. The less important serve the more important. And then Jesus throws this little gem in at the end here. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. The one who has stilled a stormy sea the one who has given sight to blind, the one who has walked on water, the one who has healed the sick, who has taught with incomparable wisdom, who has loved people when it made no sense whatsoever, (coughs) who has claimed to be the Son of God, who has literally raised people from the dead, This man who has power and authority and influence that's not rivaled, he is the one serving at this meal, becoming like the youngest, the disrespected. And it's almost as though when Jesus says this, it's like a mic drop. And there's this long silence that comes after this but I am among you as the one who serves. What we're being given here is another cog in the machine of the movement from law to grace. See, law is transactional. Law demands service. I pay you, you serve me. That's what law says. (coughs) If we take... Deuteronomy 28, and we think about that in terms of this, it's essentially, God, I obeyed you. You now owe me. So so this is a tendency that all of us can slip into. This reality where we walk through the Christian life 
And we think about the things that we do. We go to church, maybe we give some money, maybe we volunteer, <coughs> maybe we do these certain things in life throughout our weeks and we think, I'm chalking up a score here that God's going to be impressed with in some way. So that when the day comes, when I need to be bailed out, when I'm in trouble, I can look at all those things that I've done, I can point to them and say, God, see, you owe me. I deserve this. This is the ugliness of so much law being taught in modern day churches. Now, today, people actually think God owes them. That we can put God in our debt. And not to mention like the whole second part of Deuteronomy 28 that we reference, right? Disobey and you're cursed. We, we just conveniently can kind of dismiss that and forget about that part. But this is a really ugly result of us not viewing God, the gospel, law correctly. Is that we will think that God owes us something. So even in a story like this one today, where law and grace may not be explicit to us, <clears throat> we can see how the structure of the biblical story, this movement from law to grace, can be helpful in allowing us to see how the whole story fits together and how even in a story like this, these aspects of law and grace can be drawn out for us, how they still pop up. <clears throat> now, normal thought leads to the authority being served. So another way we could say this is, and I've said this already, law demands service. I want to say that this idea is really bad news. We can never serve enough. We can never serve good enough in terms of God's law. The law demands something we can't provide sufficiently. So law demands service, but grace serves. Grace gives to us something we can't do on our own, that we can't merit, accomplish, achieve on our own, and it freely gives it to us. That's the best news. We also see in the disciples how they're wiring towards law, their this, um, intent to substantiate their greatness with one another results in interpersonal conflict amongst themselves. And this is what law do, does. Law creates disputes. It will naturally do that. We will compare ourselves to one another. Law creates disputes. Grace resolves disputes. And this continues on. These verses end with a shocking interaction. So remember, the disciples were guilty of bickering and arrogantly stating their greatness. Now, if those were my children, if they were comparing their greatness to one another and trying to substantiate all the ways in which they're better than one another, I would probably be very quick to have this long conversation with them that would tire them out, basically put them to sleep, 
and would cause them to doze off or just lose focus because I would talk for so long to them about what was going on. And yet, that's not what we find in Jesus. What we find in Jesus is a ton of grace. So after briefly addressing their error, Jesus states, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Now, he's not going to say this if this isn't true, right? So he's not lying to them. But what a statement of affirmation. In the face of them arguing about a really stupid thing, sinful, we could even say. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And he continues, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table. Jesus is going to serve them in such a way that they are esteemed. They are honored. Now, their lives here on earth are going to be filled with gathering people around their table and serving them and honoring those people as well. But this is the motivating force in all of it, that Jesus has done this and will do this to us. This is grace. Jesus is coming underneath them, serving them, loving them, caring for them. (laughs) The most powerful person ever to walk this world is serving them. And then Jesus goes on to tell them that they're going to sit on thrones. At every turn, we see that grace is better. Grace is better. It does not demand. It serves. It resolves disputes. So grace takes the prescribed set of rules and turns them upside down or removes them altogether in some ways. Where the law condemns, grace restores. The way to greatness is not through a law. It's through grace. And the reality is our culture is going to give us tons of laws, tons of ways in which greatness is found. Our kids walk into classrooms, right? And they inherently hear greatness is found by you doing really well on this test, scoring high on this test. This idea of law is everywhere. We can't get away from it. We've got to learn ways in which we can let grace inform and shape our interaction with these realities. So we end our services talking about gospel application, right? So it's not about what we do. We don't want you walking out of here thinking about, these are all the things that I need to do. Especially today, right? Oh, what do I need to do to be great? Okay, here's the list of all the things. Not at all. It's not what we're going for. Okay? We want you to be reminded this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done for you. He's the great one. Not us. So today, our one point of gospel application is greatness is Jesus. This should confront so many conceptions we have around greatness. If, if we just kind of blithely think, oh yeah, of course, that's what it is. My guess is like this isn't actually gripping us in a profound way. If we are honest, we are pretty impressed with ourselves. 
it's easy for us to think highly of ourselves as compared to like, this person did this thing, I would never do that kind of thing, right? Or to think highly maybe of other people or our kids or whatever. Greatness is not us, nor anything we might achieve. Do you believe that? Do you actually fully embrace that idea? Greatness is not found in anything you might achieve. You might hear you're great from your boss. You might hear you're great in some sense, but any of your greatness, I would contend, is wrapped up in what God has given to you in grace, in a variety of ways. The concept of greatness should always lead us back to Jesus. Always lead us back to Jesus. When we taste great food, this should lead us to the one who has created everything. When we catch a big fish, like a trophy fish, we should not be impressed with ourselves. We couldn't see what was going on underneath the water, right? It could be dumb luck. It could be accident that that happens, right? A trophy fish should not cause us to be impressed with ourselves. Or we get that possession that we think is so sweet. The phone, the boat, the house, the bike, whatever it is, it should cause us to marvel at the giver of all good gifts, not ourselves. Or when we're excited by an acrobatic display of athleticism, someone makes a great catch. Or we see someone create this marvelous piece of artwork. The giftedness that they possess, the ability that they have is ultimately derived from the greatness of God. From his kindness in allowing us to participate in this world in this way. The concept of greatness should always lead us back to Jesus. This is all grace. In so many ways. It's like we're drinking from a fire hose of grace, but so often we just don't see it. We see we're so focused on kind of the human realities, and we don't see how the divine is interconnected in our world. So all the good things in life, this is not something we've earned by keeping the law. This is something freely given to us for our enjoyment. And I would say despite our ongoing breaking of God's law as well. The good that we receive is a gift that Jesus gives to us for our enjoyment. Yes, not, not asking us to be ascetics or, or martyrs and think like we can't enjoy things. No, you should enjoy things. You should enjoy the good gifts that God gives to you. Not to an, ex an extent of idolatry, but you should enjoy those things. You should celebrate the goodness of life. Greatness is found not in you, not in anything you can achieve, but only in Jesus.